We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn there with me, the book of Nehemiah. And a lot of times I provide slides and points to help you follow along. And uh, sometimes I intentionally don't do that. And this morning uh, there will not be slides for you. So I want to encourage you to uh, just... Uh, channel your minds, your thoughts, your hearts into God's Word, and uh, you don't have to capture every word or every, even every point necessarily that I make or that we find in God's Word, but I do hope that you will absorb uh, some truth and some applications of that to your life. So I'd encourage you just to be on alert and be aware of what God is showing you from his word and then how you can apply that. Um, In other words, we might say what you can learn and how you can live, right? And uh, today and next Sunday, Lord willing, this is my plan, is to uh, talk about from God's word a couple of ways that we can be praying for our church. And I'm calling it prayer that builds God's work. Prayer that builds God's work. So we'll be talking about that today. Now, I want to mention that uh, Faith and I have to leave right after this service today. Uh, we are driving uh, to Louisville, Kentucky today, and then uh, tomorrow on in to our destination for the week, where we're going to be uh, at a conference and uh, representing Faith Baptist Bible College there for the week. Um, so we'll be slipping out pretty quickly after this service is over. And uh, I'll be back next weekend, and I'll be with you here on Sunday, and then we will be away for a few more weeks, and uh, you have some good good preaching and everything ahead for you with uh, the people we have lined up for that. So I just want to mention that to you as well, and appreciate your prayer as we travel, and uh, we trust God will bless you here as well. What does the church, what does this church need right now? We need the hand of of God. Nehemiah talks about the hand of God on him and on his work and on the effort to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. We need the hand of God too, don't we? Guiding us, providing for us, protecting us, empowering us. We know God loves the church. And we know that Jesus Christ is building his church. We also know that that there are ways that you and I are involved, ways that we participate in the work that God is doing here. We can't do supernatural work, can we? No no strategic plan, no, uh, no alignment or arrangement with an outside organization, no infusion of resources and funds. Nothing can can accomplish the work of God apart from his hand, his involvement. It must be supernatural. And we can call on God for that. We can ask God to bring his power, his resources, his activity, his spirit, his hand to work and to bear on the church. He has made a way for us to communicate with him. Now, this is true for us as a church, and this is true for any individual, that God has made a way for you to communicate with him, and that is called prayer. And he has opened up access to himself through our one mediator, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4, since then 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And that's true of you as an individual. That's also true of us as a church. We have a, we have a, a Savior and a high priest who knows and who cares about us. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then verse 16 is the exhortation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if we are individuals in need, we can call upon God for help because of Christ. If we are a church that has needs, we can call on God in prayer with confidence because of Christ. And we also know that, that God's word specifically points us to pray for the church and in behalf of the church and promises us that God hears and answers those prayers, in fact, in ways that are beyond what we even know to ask. At the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power, that supernatural power of God at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So, so Paul is telling us that God wants to work, that he has the ability to work, and that he will do more than we ask him to do so that he will receive glory in the church. So we know we need to pray. We know God will hear and answer our prayers. The question is, how should we pray? How should you pray for your church? How should you pray for God's work in the church? Well, we have a book of the Bible here, the book of Nehemiah, that's not about the church. It is about God's rebuilding work. There are many lessons here that we could find in the book of Nehemiah that we could relate to what God is doing here. One of the big lessons in this book is about prayer that builds God's work. Sometimes we don't know how to pray, what to pray for. We can learn from Nehemiah. He was a man of prayer. Nehemiah took on this enormous project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They had been destroyed when the Israelites were taken into captivity to Babylon in the 6th century B.C. as a result of God's chastening for their disobedience and idolatry. But God was bringing them back. God is merciful. God had an undying love for them. And he was making a way for them to return to their land and bring them back to their city and to rebuild the city. And, and the, t- the, the city and the temple were vital to their reoccupation of the land. And this was a, a huge project for Nehemiah to undertake. But God assigned him to do it. And it was God's project. And Nehemiah wasn't working on his own. And, and all through this book, we see that he is working in, in tandem with God. He is hand in hand with God. And one way that he did that was through prayer. Isn't that how we should be functioning here as a church? Shouldn't we be functioning hand in hand with God through prayer? And of course we know that we should. So we're going to look at two of his prayers today and and next Sunday, Lord willing. I hope they will be an encouragement to you to pray, as well as a model for you as you pray for God's work in your church. And the first one we're going to look at today as we talk about a prayer for building God's work is a prayer of 
confession, a prayer of confession. It starts in our own hearts, doesn't it? God's work starts with us each individually. Boy, girl, young man, young woman, older man, older woman, whatever age or stage of life you're in, you're part of this gathering, you are here today, and it starts in your heart. And this, this calls us to allow God to search our own hearts. I'm going to read chapter 1 for us and then talk about Nehemiah's prayer of confession. So let's look at it together starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. So he's in captivity. He's in in Babylon, away from the land of Israel. And he says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. So there were some that were still there, some still back in the land, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. So that's how they're doing. Great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house And I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And I'll stop there for now. Most of the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon. Some of them had been left in their homeland. A delegation had come with a report on the condition of the city. This was now around the year 445 B.C., And the report was that the people still in the land and in the area of Jerusalem were in great distress and reproach, meaning they had experienced disaster. The situation was was awful. 
These words describe loss, but not only loss, but an element of disgrace that goes with that. They were in a state of dishonor. So when people looked at the place where they were supposed to be living and inhabiting, it was shameful to them. And it was dishonoring to God. It it describes it as broken down. The walls are broken down. So the city of, of Jerusalem was defenseless without walls. But also, these walls functioned, if you're familiar with with, um, engineering and construction, these walls functioned as retaining walls, so so they made it so that the city was on a solid foundation. And with the walls crumbling, then the integrity of the city itself, the base of the city, was weakened. And it was destroyed by fire, so everything was just in devastation. And it not only affected the, the physical elements of where they lived, but it affected their their attitudes, their, their mentality, their spirit. And if you've ever had something happen to your house or, or your car, and it's like, oh, you know, we had this, this problem or this accident or this natural disaster or this, you know, flood or whatever, and it's like, oh, it just, it just messes everything up. And this is what it was like for them, except on a much larger scale. Their lives were messed up. And it was, it was an awful situation for them. So what was Nehemiah's reaction? Verse 4 tells us, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. So he was grieved. But he did not just despair. He didn't just stay at that low point. He did what every child of God should do. Right? When there's a need, he prayed. He says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, so this man was in a very significant position as the king's cupbearer. He was a man of responsibility. He was a man with motivation. He was a man with, with vision. He was a man of action. And you see that as you continue with this story as it unfolds in the book of Nehemiah. But, but here we see that, that, first of all, he was a man of prayer, wasn't he? He just prayed. So, so we have this problem, we have this crisis, and now we begin to see the, the way that this crisis is being resolved initially in Nehemiah's personal life and in his heart. And I guess that's what I would, I would encourage you all to think about this morning. So if there's a need, if there's a need for growth, if there's a need for revitalization, a need for rebuilding, where does that start? Well, it starts in the heart of every single one of us, doesn't it? And often it starts with confession. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. So I want, I want to point out to you three elements of this prayer of confession. Three elements of this prayer of confession. First of all, confession starts with who God is. Confession starts with who God is. Verse 5, Lord God of heaven. And that's not just a formal, routine, ceremonial way to start a prayer. He's addressing God. And as he addresses God, he uses this title. Lord, with capital letters, is is Yahweh, the self-existent one who is over all. So so he's the self-existent God, and he's the God of heaven. He he inhabits heaven. So he is the self-existent, infinite, eternal God who's over everything and inhabits heaven. The great an awesome God, he says in verse 5. Oh, great and awesome God. He is great. He is superior 
over us. He is awesome in the true sense of the word. He is worthy of respect. He is worthy of awe. Who keeps, he continues now in verse 5, covenant and mercy with those who love you and keep your commandments. Mercy is the, a translation of the Hebrew word hesed, meaning covenant loyalty. So it is, in a sense, a love. It's a covenant love, but it's also a steadfast love. So, so he's saying, you're the God who keeps your promises. So he's reaching out in faith now. Nehemiah is reaching out in faith to the glorious God of heaven, but he's saying, you are the promise-keeping God. So confession starts with acknowledging who God is. He is great. He is superior. He's infinite. He's overall. He makes promises. He keeps them. And, and, and Nehemiah says that you, you make and keep these promises with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now this could cause us a little bit of misunderstanding. He's not saying that people have to be perfect in order for God to keep his promises to them. He's identifying those who know God. He's saying the people of God, those who know you, those who generally seek to be loyal to you, this is their identity in contrast to the ungodly. In the New Testament sense, we might say for believers today, if you're a believer in Christ, you're following him, you're living by his word, this is who you are. You, you know God, you love God. And you can come to him in confidence because you are his and, and this is part of confession because it is seeing God for who he is that causes us to recognize our need for confession of sin, isn't it? In fact, look with me just for a minute over to the prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter 6. This same thing happened to Isaiah, didn't it? Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Look at his view of God, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Stop there for a second. There's no grander or more glorious description of, of God on his throne than what Isaiah was allowed to see. And we see his response in verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So he confessed his personal sin as well as the sin of the land of the nation. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. What, what a blessing that as we acknowledge our sinfulness, God cleanses us. He purges us. He purifies us. He forgives us, doesn't he? So, so back here in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, we see Nehemiah confessing, having, starting his prayer of confession by acknowledging who God is. 
But then he transitions into the, the second element of his prayer of confession, and that is a prayer of confession acknowledges who we are. It acknowledges who we are, and we see this in verses 6 and 7. He calls himself your servant, Then he describes the children of Israel, your servants. So he's saying, we're we're your people. Generally speaking, in contrast to the world around us, we are your people. And we are confessing our sins. So he says, we confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. What does it mean to confess your sins? It means that you're honest, and you say, this is true of me. It means that you admit wrong that you have done. And it means that you you acknowledge to God that it is against him. It is an offense that you've committed against him. So you're honest, transparent, not holding anything back, not hiding anything and you're admitting specific wrong that has been done, and you are acknowledging it is an offense against God. It means that you do not deny or excuse or justify wrong that you've done. It means that if you've been hiding sin, that you no longer hide it. You are open about it. You humbly admit it. You say, I'm wrong, and what I'm doing is sin. Now, Nehemiah here represented a theocracy and he was acknowledging the fact that, that as a nation of people that were under the, the sovereignty of God, the kingship of God, that he was acknowledging that they as a nation had, had sinned against him. You and I are responsible for our own sins, and he even includes himself in here, doesn't he? So as we think about confessing our sin, we confess our own. And then he says in verse 7, look at how he describes and identifies this sin in verse 7. We've acted very corruptly against you. The word corrupt means destructive. Sin destroys. It destroys your own walk with God. It destroys your relationships with other people. It is hurtful. In a church setting, it, it hurts the body of Christ. So, so we think about this in relation to each one of us and how our personal lives affect the church. He says, we have acted corruptly. He says, we have acted in a way that is destructive. We are hurting the people around us. We are, we are causing the work of God to be limited and diminished by our sin. Does that happen in the church? Can that happen in the church? And the truth is it can, can it? My mind goes to Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth when they had a man that they were not addressing his sin. He was committing serious immorality. And Paul instructed them in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump. Then he says in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. So he says a little bit of corrupting, destructive influence affects everybody. And in that case, it was an extreme situation where he was telling them, you need to remove this person from fellowship with the body, right? So it was a very drastic act because the sin was so severe and so corrosive. 
So that, that's an example of how our personal sin can impact the life of the church. So, so the point is not for us to go around saying, okay, who do we need to, to remove? The point is to say, let me look at my own heart and figure out is there something in me that might cause corruption, corrosion, might have a destructive influence and impact in the life of the church. And if so, I need to be open about that and willing to, to confront it, willing to address it. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. It's probably true that we should not only be open to God showing that to us, but actually be proactive in examining our hearts to see if there's anything that is corrosive, anything that is destructive, any sinful attitude, any sinful conversation, any sinful view of somebody else, a hidden sin, a sin that we've allowed, that we've gotten used to, something that we've excused and justified for so long, we're not even sensitive to it anymore. Maybe something that another person has pointed out and said, hey, have you ever thought about this? Hey, you should consider this. Hey, I don't think this is right. Maybe a parent challenges a child, a young person, about a sin. And maybe as a young person, you just decide, oh, that's no big deal. I'm not going to worry about that. But isn't it true that we should be open to God showing us sin, ways that our hearts and lives can be destructive to the work of God in the church, but also that we should be proactive in seeking that? Let me illustrate it this way. Three years ago, um, and this is just a personal a um, uh, little bit of information as well that you can be aware of and, and praying about. Uh, three years ago, this summer, uh, Faith, my wife Faith, was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease. It's called dermatomyositis. And with that, there's the possibility of, of um, skin problems as well as muscle degeneration. Thankfully, up to this point, three years later, that has not taken place. We praise God for that. But one of the, one of the possible effects of dermatomyositis is that it can actually lead to cancer. And so immediately after being diagnosed, her doctors told her, you need to have full, complete scans right away, every, every part of your body, um, to check for cancer. So she did that right away. And then they said, you need to do this now every year for at least the next three years and possibly up to five years because of the high percentage of people who get cancer and many die of cancer because, because of this as a result of the dermatomyositis. So now Faith goes once a year and gets a full scan um, to check for any cancer. And again, praise the Lord, thankfully. Uh, there's been no, no cancer up to this point, and so we're very grateful for that, very thankful for that. But I, I share that with you as, as an example of how we as believers should have a same alertness toward the possibility of sin in our hearts and lives and be willing to undergo a regular scan of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to check our hearts, check our minds, check our attitudes, check our relationships, and see if there's any, anything that might have that corruptive, destructive effect. And I want to encourage you to do something. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me just to a few passages. So go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to encourage you today. It is Sunday. 
And maybe on the Lord's Day, you would take some time to do something like this. Or at another time, when you can block out, I would say a good hour and possibly more, look through some of these passages I'm going to share with you and just pray and open your heart to God's work and say, God, is there anything like this in my life? Ask the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to do a spiritual scan. And I'm just going to highlight a few And I would encourage you to scribble these references down and go back to them. And I'm sure there are others that you could go to. But here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is is teaching. And he's saying, look, it's not only about outwardly obeying the commands of God, but actually obeying them in your heart. Isn't that often where the problem is? So look at what he says in Matthew 5. And again, I'm just going to select a few of these. But starting in verse 21, look at Matthew 5, 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a, without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that would be like a strong insult. Not just joking around but just a a strong, harsh, malicious insult shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, so you come to worship God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's he telling you to do? Be aware of any ways where you might have anger or have expressed or exhibited anger towards someone and you have sinned against that person. You have wronged that person. And it comes to your mind. And even in the midst of an act of worship, you stop and you say, you know what, I can't pretend to be worshiping God when I am not in a right relationship with my brother or sister. And he says, go and take care of it. Let the Holy Spirit scan your heart. Is there anything like that in your life that you need to address? Uh, Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. In other words, take drastic measures, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This gets into the area of lustful thoughts. He identifies here this is a struggle that men have, uh, but it can go either way. This is something that men or women can struggle with and have lustful thoughts toward another person in a sexual way and especially to look at a person or especially in our current age of technology, we would say even to look at an image, look at a picture, look at a movie and feel that desire for sexual intimacy with a person or at a time that is not God's will for you and for that lust to be intense 
and then to allow that, to permit that, even to, to feed it and encourage it. He says, you're committing adultery. You're breaking God's laws. And that is something for all of us to check our hearts and check our lives. And again, it may be something that you've struggled with and given up on or that you struggle with and, and feel terribly guilty about um, or just know that you need to check and, and just be sure there's nothing where you're allowing this sin of lustful thoughts and lustful desires to have its way in your heart and in your life because it is destructive to you personally and can be to the church as well. And of course, there are other areas that Jesus touches on here, but let's go to Galatians chapter 5 now. So as you do this spiritual scan, I would encourage you to also use Galatians 5. This is a very common text related to our Christian lives. Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. If you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. And now he identifies these manifestations of your sinful self being in control. He calls them the works of the flesh in verse 19. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. So that not only deals with the acts of sexual sin, but again the thoughts, the attitudes, the conversations, the the jokes that go with that. Verse 20, idolatry. Loving or preferring anything or anyone in the place of God. Idolatry. Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. Now we're getting into relational sins. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. That's that divisiveness we talked about a few weeks ago. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, then that's followed by the fruit of the Spirit. That would be another scan. God, are these present in my life? And to what degree are these fruits of the Spirit present in my life? And and are there ways I should be growing? Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Allow the Holy Spirit to show you areas of growth needed in your life. Look over to Ephesians. So we've looked at Matthew 5, Galatians 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Ephesians 4.25. Again, I would say this is another text to use to do a spiritual scan. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So, is there lying going on? Lying is how we impress other people or try to by making ourselves look good. Uh, Lying is a way that we try to hide and cover wrong that we have done to escape getting into trouble. Lying is something that we sometimes use to get an advantage, to misrepresent ourselves or something we're selling or something we've done to get an advantage. It says, put it away. Speak truth. For your members of one another. Here's anger again. 
Interesting, that comes up a lot, doesn't it? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Nor give place to the devil. There's that idea of destructiveness. So by, by my sinful heart, by you allowing anger to control your life and affect your relationships, you actually allow Satan to have his way. Let him who stole steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him as need. So not only stop stealing, but, but be a person who gives and helps others. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth of what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do my words, are my words instruments of grace? Am I a channel of God's grace into people's lives by how I speak? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all, again, here's a list, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that's fighting and bickering, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Qualities for us to examine in our own hearts, but also be open to God showing us ways we can grow. Look one more place with me. The book of 1 John. Just as Nehemiah claimed the promise of God's forgiveness, we can as well, can't we? And that's the beauty. That's the joy. Look at 1 John 1, verse 8. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He keeps his promises. And he has provided the way to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now don't stop. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He paid the price that satisfies the wrath of God so that we can be forgiven. That's God's promise. So as we confess our sins, God fulfills his promise to us. And so I, I ask you, I invite you, I encourage you to take time to work through those texts and any others that the Holy Spirit might lead you to, to scan your own heart, your own soul, and see if there's anything that you need to acknowledge to God in the, in the form of confession and to receive his forgiveness for it. Now I'll go back to Nehemiah, just a little bit longer here. So this prayer of confession starts with who God is. It acknowledges who we are, and it relies on God to keep his word. It relies on God to keep his word. And this is what Nehemiah does uh, in verse 9. He's saying, in verse 8, he's saying, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded. If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But then in verse 9, if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he's calling on God 
to keep his word. He's relying on God to keep his word. And what this shows us is that this is primarily about God's faithfulness, about God's graciousness, and even about his name that you see at the end there of verse 9. It's about him. Yes, we want the relief of forgiveness. Yes, we want the, the peace and the, the happiness that comes to our, our families and our friendships and our church that comes with everything being right. Absolutely. But it's primarily about his name, isn't it? And where does his name dwell today? It is the church that magnifies and spreads the name and the fame of Jesus Christ today. So, just as Nehemiah was making his prayer of confession so that God's name would be reestablished and the reputation of God restored in that place for the surrounding people in a similar way, you and I confess our sins, receive God's forgiveness, yes, so that we can enjoy the peace of that, but also so that his name becomes strong here in this church, through you, in this community, and where you go, where you travel, the path of life that you are on as well. I just want to touch on this before we leave it here this morning. Notice the very last statement at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1. Starts with the little word for, and there's a hinge there to what comes next. For, he says, I was the king's cupbearer. And God had placed Nehemiah in a strategic role with access to the king where he would have the opportunity to see amazing things happen. But here, I think he's saying that his prayer of confession led to being able to take full advantage of that strategic role that he had. For, so he makes his prayer of confession. Then it says, now that leads into what comes next. God was giving him a providential opportunity. But it started with his humility and his honesty and his willingness to confess his sin before God so that God could move him forward into that opportunity and see it reach its full potential. I would say the same is true here. The placement of Northridge Baptist Church, the timing of your being here, others who are here assisting and and helping. It's all part of God's perfect plan, isn't it? But we have to be in a right condition in our hearts individually so that God can utilize us to the greatest potential for his name's sake. A man by the name of Russell Elliott wrote a book back in the 1800s called Some Thoughts on Prayer. And he said this, There is a divine principle in regard to prayer which runs all through the scriptures. It is, listen, that God is pleased to unite his people with himself in whatever he is about to do. So God wants to not only work above and around us, but he wants to work with us. He first of all leads them to pray and then does what he intends 
in answer to their prayers. Now, that's simple, but I think it's very meaningful too, isn't it? It's profound. God wants to work. Nothing holding him back. He's all-powerful. He can do what he wants. Certainly, he, he wants a church to grow. He wants people to reach with the gospel. But he, he unites himself with his people. He does not do it independently of us. And the way that that work begins is through prayer. Us relying on him, calling upon him. But that starts with confession, doesn't it? That's where that starts. Based on my observation, you all have stepped up your praying in the past year or two. Just from what I'm hearing and observing and all that you're doing, you've really stepped it up. The Wednesday night prayer times, the men's and women's prayer times together. You've renewed your commitment to pray for God's work as he builds his church. So I just say thank God for that. I do encourage you to take time today or this week to ask God to do a complete scan of your life and reveal any sinful attitudes or actions and confess those to God and receive his forgiveness, accept his forgiveness. He's ready to forgive so that he can do what Paul stated in Ephesians chapter 3, so that he can accomplish his great purpose and achieve unusual results, as Eliot said, as Paul said in Ephesians 3, that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think for his name's sake. Will you do that? Let's pray together. We rejoice that you are our all-powerful God. We recognize that you are at work in our lives, in this church. We hunger and thirst for the outpouring of your spirit and your power. We desire you to do a work that is beyond any of us, beyond our abilities and beyond our imaginations. Certainly you desire to, Heavenly Father. We have to believe that. So if there is anything choking the channel, anything impeding the Spirit, anything grieving the Spirit of God, anything that has broken down relationships within the church or outside the church, anything that is an offense against you that's still in our hearts that we've allowed and not confessed, I pray that you would, by your grace, convict us, not only show us, but convict us of these, and enable us, by your Spirit, to take action by confessing to you, possibly restoring a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, and then moving forward with your power to see you do a great work. In Jesus' name, amen.